0: All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement.
1: What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lions' hands. folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The opinions we share, all that American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz
0: all right, Brendan, it is Monday evening, October the 9th. Holiday for some, but not for all.
2: Well, that's really where I wanted to start this week's episode. We're going to spend the bulk of the episode talking about what's happening over in Israel and Palestine, but figured if while we're recording on the first The second Monday in October, we might as well talk about some of the debate that's existed around this day for the last few years. Ricky, it's one of 11 federal holidays, which means that federal employees have the day off, and because federal offices will be closed, so will most banks and bond markets that trade in U.S. government debt, but for many other people, this is... Uh, just a regular Monday. And so I want to get into that a little bit and did a little bit of research for you as I tried to do today is known as Columbus Day and six and celebrated as Columbus Day in 16 states. Four other states celebrate this as Indigenous Peoples Day or some other form of like Native American celebration. Four states celebrate this as of an amalgamation of holidays celebrating several different things including columbus day or indigenous people's day and some other more local holidays and then 26 states, this isn't a holiday at all so given the split across the country around this day and the conversation and debate that has existed in the last few years around this day is it do you have strong feelings columbus day indigenous people's day does it even really
0: matter Well, I mean, I feel like for most three day weekends, one of the things that happens often is that we forget the reason that we're celebrating and or supposed to be celebrating. but we do recall uh, the the general joy we get from an extra day off in a shortened work week. Sure. I being uh, working for a california based company do not have today off, so I'm coming at you live after work but um, in general yeah.
2: Columbus, uh, California was one of the the states that ditched Columbus Day back in two thousand nine.
0: Ah, good to. Know. I didn't. I actually did not know that. For some reason, like my perception of the holiday was that it had always been more of an East Coast holiday. So to hear that sixteen states were actively celebrating it was uh, interesting to me. I had sort of thought of it as like a Northeast thing.
2: Well, it, it's very much. You can see it if you, if you bl- plotted this, like all those stats out on the calendar. Uh, on a map, you would have Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York and Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland. All of those states celebrate this as Columbus Day. And so it's it's far less celebrated on the West Coast and even in the Midwest.
0: Yeah, which which I, I suppose makes some sense to me. I've also heard that Columbus Day and heard more so either – read on social media, which, uh, yikes, may not be the best uh, source of truth, but that the idea behind the holiday was, you know, in part to commemorate Christopher Columbus, but also as like a, a nod to kind of Italian-American heritage um, in the early 20th century. Are you well, uh, you, you know, look like right. you're <laughs> about to, to to correct me there.
2: No, I am not, but I I will provide a little more history and context around this day for you. So Columbus Day has been celebrated unofficially in the U.S. since like the late 1700s amongst some peoples and populations. In 1892, the president, Benjamin Harrison at the time, issued a proclamation commemorating the 400th anniversary of his landing, also kind of simultaneous to this is when you're getting waves of Italian immigrants coming over to the United States, like late 19th, early 20th centuries. That's really when America uh, Italians are, are coming in these big waves, and they're facing discrimination. They're facing discrimination uh, for their religion. Uh, many of them are Catholic. They're facing discrimination because of their color of their skin, which was darker than many of the people that lived here at the time. Uh, uh, language, and then the traditional of language and work and all, all of the things that, maybe any group of immigrants faces. So, in the early 20th century, a group of Italian-American elites really made a concerted campaign arguing that Christopher Columbus was really emblematic of the American spirit, of this guy who took chances and took these, these risks and enabled this great discovery. And that just kind of goes along with this American ethos of leaving your home, not really being sure of like your destination, but when you get there, you, you, oh, you Enable like the founding of this land, this land which grows goes on to establish modern day democracy and, and these great values, and so we should celebrate this guy. That peaks in 1934, and President Roosevelt declares Columbus Day a, a federal holiday.
0: Ah, uh, well, you said I certainly do learn something new every day. The I I and I think even in your sort of description of the history, I think is. Really, where the if there is contention about it, like where it um, where it stems from, right? Like the discovery of the new land. It's hard to discover something that was theoretically already here and inhabited by uh, other people, right? Which is where the where this drive, so so to speak, to to change it from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day comes from. I think, in general, I don't know. I don't really know where I stand on these types of issues in like more broadly. I'm not, I'm not hugely in favor of like running around and tearing down statues because I think, I think too often we try and put people in the only good or only evil category. And Mm -hmm. I think in history has just shown everything to be more complicated than that. And so trying to rewrite it in with a present day lens is always a challenge. And it, and it really does, unfortunately, either, you know, you paint it with a broad brush in one direction or the other. I I think it, it is still hard to understate the magnitude of his achievement, being able to sail from Europe to the Americas in a way that made you know follow-up journeys possible and more practical um in the time that he did it is is you know a a phenomenal feat at the same time we know some of the history that follows it's it's hard to trace like all all of colonialism and pin it on christopher (laughs) columbus but in some ways he's become the poster child for it and you know we do know about um some of the you know the missionaries and a lot of other things harmful consequences that have come out of it but like anything there's you know you don't have present day america in many ways without it also so
2: yeah of of course and i think you know as a little kid growing up i really believed that columbus had like discovered the americans like he was like, like there was no one here before until columbus like that's the story you know 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue and then he discovers these lands and then get a little bit older still as a kid and you're like oh well there were indigenous peoples Native Americans across all of these North Central South America and then that's part of it and then you start to realize a little bit more of the context where like well some of like the Vikings like Leif Erikson's had actually discovered this land before like these Europeans before Christopher Columbus Uh, but obviously as, as you noted Columbus's arrival in the New World makes it possible for kind of at the time, so, so some of it is circumstantial as all, all history is, it makes it possible for permanent European settlements on these continents and gives rise to what we have seen in the last 500 plus years. But so I, I agree with you in the sense that, like, I don't think this is part of history. So just completely throwing it out. I think providing more context like we have been getting in the in the last few years or even last decade or so like, is really good and to read articles about the promise that columbus and his band like of explore fellow explorers were able to bring to back to europe and this idea of the new world and everything that's flowed from that is great and also all of the terrible things whether intentionally with like the enslavement or the Degradation of the native peoples or the unintentional things through sickness and disease of, of these people. I think all of that is worthy of the conversation. And so in that sense, I'm glad when people provide more context around this day. And while I think I totally agree with you, it's completely unfair to pin all of the problems of colonialism on Christopher Columbus. At the same time, he's the only one that has a federal holiday. I mean, like, we don't have a a Magellan day or some of the, like, Conquistador days. Like, he's the one where he kind of, because he, Italian-Americans made him the face of exploration and colonialism, like, he's necessarily going to get the brunt of it. And that's where it comes back to this weird bifurcation we have around this day.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, I guess, you know, you can maybe debate about whether he belongs on the list of uh statues that that need to come down i think on the not and this is actually not the flip side of the coin but the idea that you know naming uh or renaming a holiday from christopher columbus day to indigenous people's day somehow is a like you know makes up for uh effectively what happened to most of the native tribes that were existing in the United States pr- prior to sort of uh, European involvement on the continent is kind of wild. And it, it, it's just one of those things that like, is our time spent better elsewhere? Like, can we do more to improve or to even atone for some of these things better than by saying, well, Christopher Columbus is the, you know, if we, if we want to find a source of the problem, it was this guy. So we'll rename the holiday. And then again, we'll, we can, we can, you know, wipe our hands of it. I think it's, I mean, you know, there are several things like this, right? Like the renaming of the Washington football team or um, I mean that per- perhaps obviously there are sort of more racist undertones, but like in terms of like, what are we doing to actively, Right. Like, if we say that colonialism is the reason that in many native communities we have sort of, you know, we have a lot of social ills and we obviously haven't been able to preserve a lot of the native culture, is changing the name of a football team or renaming a holiday, are these steps in the right direction or are they almost like the Hollow gestures to say that, like, no, you know, we're we're conscious yeah. now, so this is, you know, this is what we're doing, and it's like, well, I don't know that that really helps anything. Like, I, you know, we have days for so many things now. Obviously, we don't have federal holidays for all these things, but um it, I don't know. I guess a bit of it rings rings hollow to me as like, if if we really care about these issues is this the way that we should invest our energy or should we be doing something else and i mean you could argue that with like a veterans day too right like all right is this the best way to honor people through these holidays well,
2: it, it's not but i think one of the arguments for something like indigenous peoples Day would be similar to like veterans Day, were like yeah, if we really cared about our veterans, we should be investing resources to make sure that they're taken care of and so many veterans don't succumb to tragedies of homelessness or suicide or these awful things that happen to far too many veterans. But what does Veterans Day do? It forces awareness around it, it forces us us to talk about these issues. kind of similar, Ricky, to what we talked about when we talked about Juneteenth as a holiday, where it's this, this very new idea, but what if you and I, I, I imagine, at a, a far greater scale, of Americans have now taken time around that day to reflect on the treatment of Black Americans, the accomplishment of Black Americans, the current status of Black Americans. Like that, it just provides an opportunity to think about the history. And if you're arguing for Indigenous People's Day, this that's what you would argue is like yeah maybe our time and money and resources would be better spent actually helping current Native American communities who are to still live amongst us and have their unique struggles as as a people as far as peoples but it's not like an either or thing it's not like I think that people are necessarily going to do this on their own this day would bring attention to it I read a stat somewhere that 87 percent of uh, U.S. Like, history and social studies curriculums don't mention Native American history after 1900. Like, if, if it's mentioned, it's mentioned kind of right at the beginning of, of time and that uh, 27 states don't make any mention of Native Americans in their K-12 social studies curriculum. And so like there, there are clear gaps when you, you and I talk about telling the full story. Maybe this is a day if you're arguing for that, that provides an impetus for people to try to learn more.
0: Yeah. And I, and I, I think that that's absolutely right. Like that is the real benefit of it, whether it makes sense in so many ways to like try and replace an existing holiday um, that almost creates like additional contention around the, like we should be, we should be celebrating this in much the way that we should have been celebrating Juneteenth for as long as we could have. Like, I think this is, a similar thing, and I think your point as as to how we learn about Native Americans as if they are a relic of history, even though yeah. many yeah. of these tribes continue to exist in present day United right. States, is a is certainly a problem. Um, and it's yeah, I, I I think it's it's tough to see a reason not to have an indigenous people's day i think it totally makes sense i think the question is obviously there's some symbolism in replacing columbus day with indigenous people's day is that the most sort of effective use of the time and also like is is sort of the history of christopher columbus and other explorers the amerigo vespucci and vasco da gama and like all of that is that not worth a day to comm- yeah. commemorate or even to think about or but also like to further understand their history and it is both this amazing achievement but also sort of the the you know the kickoff of this 500 year period of european expansion and colonialism like it's it's very important in terms of how we understand the present day so like the idea of like well he was bad so we need to we need to erase the the memory of him <clears throat> is i don't know that that i think that's where i struggle
2: yeah no i think that's totally fair and a really good point because one of the things that bothers me most about this debate is that it's become like it, as so many things do either or Right, that either you are part of this new woke anti-european anti-white anti-american history whatever you want to call it like then that you you're decapitating statues of columbus and throwing blood on him and it's like it's such craziness so everyone digs in on the side of like this is american history and this is italian american history and like you're not going to disrespect like our history and our culture versus the other side of like you are you are someone that is anti-indigenous people and you don't recognize refuse to open your eyes recognize all the terrible things that colonialism wrought on this land and this people and well maybe they're both worth celebrating i don't think anyone would criticize like getting another federal holiday off you know no one's going to be complaining about that and maybe it gives everyone their it gives more due and more time around both of these Ideas of exploration and indigenous people, as opposed to becoming this kind of uh, op- oppositional thing, because that's what I I don't I don't love is that you know we only have 11 federal holidays, and the fact that like one of them is now so contentious, like like it's it feels like another thing that's kind of tearing apart unity, as opposed to like these holidays. Whether it's Veterans Day or July 4th or Memorial Day or Thanksgiving or Christmas, like these are the ones that should be bringing people together and instead this is doing the opposite of that, which is why I did want to spend some time on it, because the fact that it's just so different across the country, despite being one of only 11 days that we say as a country we're going to celebrate is, I think that's, that's bothersome to me.
0: Yeah, well said.
2: All right, uh, well, that's our Columbus Indigenous Peoples Day discussion. I would certainly be curious to hear what other people's thoughts on this. And I, I just think even here in Massachusetts, Ricky in Boston, it's known as Indigenous Peoples Day, but Massachusetts is one of the 16 states that still celebrates it just as Columbus Day. And uh, it's it's just kind of this, it's, it's I think it's adding to tension that doesn't necessarily need to be there. So uh, we figured while we're recording on this day we might as well engage in the debate a little bit around it but we'll we'll put that o- away for now we will put a poll on Instagram or something or uh, and now we'll, we'll transition into the real news of the week again the week I anticipate the, the rest of the year in a lot of ways uh, the tragedy that is unfolding and still in the process of unfolding in the Middle East
0: So obviously we had to talk about this, but I will be very honest and say that I've dreading is not the right word. Um, But like, I've, I've been very anxious about this conversation. And obviously we got to have one that I, I, I thought was pretty thoughtful. Um, It's but it's been a couple of years now since we since we did our episode on Jerusalem, um. But that was one that at the time I was like, I don't know if I want to do this because, yes. and I and I don't even know that I got to say it then, but I probably want to say it now. It's I, I feel like the anxiety is both that you cannot really express or like fathom what is happening on the ground um in a situation like this. Second, that I want to be very conscious that other people are experiencing what is happening in different ways depending on their connection to either the place or the people involved. Um, and that I have a very different connection but we've always sort of operated under the context that no topic should be off limits because whether we talk about them or not we all have opinions on them and the point or one of the points in in doing this is that we explore what those opinions are what our beliefs are and we attempt to either challenge them or push them to try and understand better to hopefully helps kind of everyone understand better because the alternative is that everyone only talks to people who believe exactly what they believe and we don't really get anywhere and that's not to say that something about this podcast could really get us anywhere we're not that uh (laughs) I think we have a little bit more humility than that, but just wanted to kind of get that out there that I think we're going to do our best to talk through how we are understanding the situation on the ground. Um, but also recognizing that for many people, we're going to fall short. And that's not to say that we don't want people to reach out and tell us when or where we fell short in their opinion um, in in this episode or in any, but um, I will disclaim that way before we start. With that said, Brendan, where would you like to begin?
2: Well, that's really well said, really thoughtful as usual. And I will make a similar disclaimer is that I, this. Particular topic is always a bit of a, is one that's fraught for me and for us and for anybody. I think which is why in previous Instances you and I have tried to get some people on to talk about this and no one no one actually really wants to go on on the record and talk about it And it's especially Difficult on a day like today when this stuff is still unfolding. This is why I really appreciate having the opportunity to have this podcast especially to have these conversations to force myself to, to engage it in the the thought processes around it because there's almost competing things one and that it's so horrific that you you don't actually want to talk about what's happening because it's like it's really difficult to see and, and hear about what's happening in these in israel and palestine and it's also like, there's, it's just still very emotional. So I, I'm glad that we took, a, it's been a couple of days since it first happened, but again, it's very much unfolding. I think emotions for you and I, not to mention far greater on for people that are more connected to these areas and these issues for them. So I think we've given proper disclaimers. I, I want to just do a brief overview of, hopefully an objective overview of the situation before we get into some of uh, maybe more controversial or places that you and I probably disagree, but on a Saturday morning in Israel, militants from Hamas, which is uh, designated a terrorist organization by many countries in the world, is also the de facto leader of the, the Gaza Strip in Palestine, invaded Israel. They invaded by land, air, and sea. It was a very complex and well-planned military operation. They killed many innocent Israeli citizens. The latest total I saw was between six and 700. Several hundred of those were attending a music festival in southern Israel. They took many hostages. Over 100 was the last Number that I saw, the amongst the dead and amongst the hostages are people from many nationalities, uh, including Americans and, pe- and Europeans and Africans and Asians, people from all over the world. Uh, and there have been widespread reports of not just the the killing of innocent civilians, but the the rape of many women, the imprisoning of children. Sure. If you've been on social media at all, you have seen a lot of those really horrific images and stories. Obviously, Israel responded uh, harshly. Uh, President uh, Netanyahu said that they declared war on. On said that Israel was at war. Uh, just today, their their minister. Uh, Declared that essentially they're going to lay t- a total siege to Gaza Strip. Said uh, Netanyahu said that quote, what we will do to our enemies in the coming days will reverberate with them for generations. Uh, and the defense minister was the the person I was re- referencing. You go Galant said there would be uh, referencing the siege. Said there would be no elect- quote, no electricity, no fu- no food, no fuel. We are de- dealing with non humans and we will treat them that way. And so since, since the invasion by the, the terrorists and on Saturday, Israel has launched a rocket barrage of Gaza in addition to the, the siege that they are enacting and hundreds of Palestinians have been killed. The latest number I saw was 400 Palestinians, including 91 children. That number is only going to rise probably exponentially in the coming days. Hamas has said that they are going to start live streaming executions of hostages. If this continues, I imagine it will continue simultaneous to all that. There are reports that Iran had given the green light at best on on this attack, and the Iran-backed Hezbollah, which is another terrorist organization out of Lebanon dedicated to most other things to Israel's destruction. There's worries that they might uh, engage in an attack on Israel to the north. And of course, there are now concerns, in addition to all of the human suffering that will inevitably come from Israel and Palestine, that this could, escalate quite quickly into a broader regional conflict. Some more context: Saudi Arabia and Israel and the United States were engaged in conversations for Saudi Arabia to become another Middle Eastern Arabic country to recognize Israel as a state. As this was happening, there's obviously tension in the region between Israel and Iran. The United States and Iran have well-documented Rivalry here. And so there's there are serious concerns that this could spiral even more out of control Quite quickly. So there's hopefully that's as an objective Assessment of the situation as I can give it's like obviously as I said heading into like including last segment This is a, a just an absolute tragic weekend and week for people living in this region I cannot imagine the terror that people both in Israel and Palestine are feeling right now. Um, I guess I'll, I'll leave it there and kick it back to you.
0: Yeah, that I think that was as good of an objective overview as you can provide. Um, I think the challenge with something like this and partially what has been difficult about it is finding news sources that seem to be objective um in their coverage Uh, it's and it's it's actually interesting if you read any comment any comment sections in new york times or even some wall street journal it's even the ones that purport to be objective depending on who's reading it feel like the objectivity is not either not objective enough or being objective when they shouldn't be objective. And, um, depending on who's reading it there, it, it's, it is one of those situations. that's just very hard. One of the things I would encourage anyone who listens to this podcast to do, and I feel like folks who are interested in what we have to say already do a lot of this anyways, but to not definitely don't rely on social media um if you do see something interesting on social media try to find the actual source of the information and not just sit on some of the more sensationalized either information or reports it's tempting because people have gotten really good at how they can grab your attention but it is ultimately unhelpful if you are trying to understand um, what's going on. I think the the problem, of course, is that like we have the issue of what's going on right now, which is that Israel, in many ways, was exposed to not be as impervious to these kinds of attacks as they probably had felt that they were given, um how strong the military is overall um given that it has been some time since some well something like this is really in many ways unprecedented in its scale in the conflict um on to happen on sort of the Israeli side of the soil um that is of course another loaded uh a loaded term but yeah i guess <laughs> I guess in trying to, in trying to think about how, what, like what to make of this, you know, the, uh, the civilian casualties, I think is where I come back to. Obviously what happened in Israel is atrocious that, I mean, you cannot think about it in any other term, but to, to describe it as an atrocity, um, and I don't want to add any like buts. That's a, that is a full stop. Um, there's, you know, nothing, I'm, no qualification on that. What is going to happen following what has happened is also going to be an atrocity of a similar proportion. And the, the, thing that i think is going to be difficult in the west as we like as obviously we have called hamas a terrorist organization and we call hezbollah a terrorist organization and and in how they operate i don't think there's another real description for them and yet when you look at what Israel has pledged to do, right? A siege of Gaza. We're going to treat them as inhuman because that is what they are. You begin to understand a bit of how a group of people could turn toward leadership like Hamas, right? They were elected in some fashion, whether, you know, however you feel about that. And this is not to sort of justify what happened, but it's, it is impossible to take what happened out of the context in which it happened. And I think the real question is, is the like, can Israel through its military might actually effectively remove Hamas from Palestine in a way that secures its security going forward, or is the conditions under which Palestinian people are forced to live going to continue to breed future groups like Hamas who wish to do Israel harm and I think that's the problem that is not being addressed like do we you know maybe some of the near-term military might we can show will prevent some of these attacks from happening tomorrow or in a week or in a month but what do we have to do for long-term security and I think a lot of People, at least on social media I've seen, have co- tried to compare what's going on between, uh, or tried to sort of say, and I don't actually think it's a it's a poor comparison, that, you know, this is Israel's 9-11, yes. and so in many ways they should get carte blanche to do what they feel they need to do to quote-unquote defend themselves, and I feel like the... <laughs> is a great example for how a country that is reeling after feeling like their sense of security was shattered went out and did 20 years of some of the stupidest foreign policy decisions out there and really did nothing to improve their sense of security against these types of foreign acts. Like what going into Afghanistan, going into Iraq, right? These were decisions that we made in a in a way that we were saying, well, you know, we have to show force and strength and all of these other things that I don't know that history has the best track record of bearing out like this is how you ensure your long term peace and stability. So that's, I think, where I am. And I think in general, it's just with a with a very heavy heart, because I know I I don't, truly I can never really know what what people are going through who are losing their loved ones um, who have lost their loved ones mothers ch- children parents grandparents and but this is true truly um, and th- and that goes for for either Israeli or Palestinian
2: yeah you referenced uh, a couple episodes that we have done so episode 28 is titled what is Jerusalem Worth? Nothing, everything, which is a line from *King of Heaven*, one of my favorite movies. But Ricky and I went deep into like the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So if people want more of the history of how we got here. I would highly recommend that episode. We just did when we hit our hundredth episode. You, you ranked that as one of your top five favorite episodes that we ever did. Back in episode seventy, we had Jeffrey Robbins, who is a writer, reporter, attorney, former worked for the United States government and the United Nations. Uh, we talked about anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and in the world. And then we've actually talked about Israel and Palestine twice in the last year, episodes 84 and 96, as part of our 6 and 60, as there were maybe signs that the tension was was growing. And even though Israel is no stranger to wars, and off my head, you have the Israeli War of Independence in 1948, you have the Suez Canal, nationalization and all that came around that with 1956 you had the 67 was the seven days war uh in 73 was the yom kippur war which is probably the closest thing up until now what they've had and then you had i think it was war, in, the first lebanese war in 1982 and then there was second lebanese war in 2006 but nothing in, in compared to this in recent decades and i think you're exactly right comparing this to 9 11 there are so many parallels where just a catastrophic intelligence and in military failure where and subsequently in the case of 9/11 it came out that all these phrases like the lights were blinking red and we just like couldn't connect the dots and it seems like unfortunately that's what happened here is is really yeah maybe they had gotten a little bit complacent uh, given how strong how really legendary their both their defense uh, and their intelligence community and their military have all been and it's just a, it's a catastrophic failure but you know their reaction in their righteous anger is totally understandable it's it's exactly what we were going through post 9 11 and like how how much anger there was and how much the desire for vengeance and yeah it's easy 15 or 20 years later to look back and say oh man we, we were maybe not right in that And I agree with you that I would hope that there would be cooler heads in and around the Israeli government military saying, like, that had surveyed the scene and recognized the parallels and said that we shouldn't behave how the United States behaved in this. But I also understand if there aren't and that the desire for vengeance, and even as similar as this is to 9-11 for Israelis, it's, it's way worse in so many ways. Like proportionally, far more people, Israelis were killed than Americans were killed in that day. And not only that, but there, the people that killed them are still in Israel, like some of them. And the other ones are right on the border. And they're the ones that are saying that this is a coordinated military op- operation in ways that even though we were scared in the United States in the days and weeks following 9-11, it wasn't like what Israel has to deal with all of the time. And so if we can say like at the time that we felt like someone is going to have to pay for what happened in 9-11, what Hamas just did is in in many ways far worse. And I totally understand like the, the anger and the desire for vengeance and to strike with like the hammer of God and bring that down with total fury on Hamas. Of course, there is the other side here. Of course, Gaza is one of the most impoverished places and one of the most highly uh, packed, dense places in the world. For those of you who to into geography, obviously you can go look this up, but the Gaza Strip is uh, along the, it's in the south of Israel, of that land bordering Egypt and the Mediterranean. It's It's a small, like I said, dense, I think 2 million Palestinians live there. And Israel, as they've started to do this time, often dominates the area with their air superiority. And so what you can do is when you bomb Hamas, Hamas, so kind of both things, Hamas uses human shields. I think they they are, and then when Israel kills civilians, they say, well, like, look, Israel's even worse than us. They're just killing a bunch of a bunch of our civilians. Well, when you're hiding in hospitals, they go, what, what's gonna happen? And, but on the other hand, anytime you drop bombs on a place that's so densely, Pact, like you're going, inevitably you're going to kill civilians. And while the United States, like the loss of the thousand, couple thousand lives in 9-11, as you correctly noted, what, what were the loss of lives in, in Iraq and Afghanistan in the 20 years? They numbered in the tens of thousands, maybe even more than that. And so I, I think the parallel is totally apt. I don't know. Especially given the context of is the Israeli government right now that they have people that are going to urge caution and precision here.
0: Yeah, I uh, I, I think you t- you touch on um, a number of things that I want want to circle back to um, a little bit. I think I mean I think the number, just a fact check that we okay. may have to do after, but I think the number of people that died on 9/11 in both the towers plus the planes was closer to 3,000 so not saying that this won't get there or surpass it but in the in the just in the, the quick numbers comparison but I think more to your point about or why I think it's important to 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 get as much like first person, news that you can from reputable news sources that you can is this framing of what is happening um and specifically israel's response because i think we can all it's not it's sort of not difficult to to look at what hamas did look at the fact that they only attack civilian targets and categorize it exactly the way that it is which is an you know, an absolute atrocity, right? This notion that, well, they hide in buildings where civilians live, so when we bomb them and we kill civilians, that's their fault, is, again, I would, I would say that that is a ridiculous ass- assertion. Now, I think to your points about, you know, do we have to care because this is... This is vengeance. This is retribution. They killed our people. We're going to kill their people. Of course, like, I, I mean, who are you, uh, you know, in, in what mother who lost her son or, you know, what son who lost her mother, are you going to tell them that, no, you shouldn't do that? But I think we as outsiders can say that that is not like right. Like this is a very classic playground, like two, right, two wrongs do not make a right here and bombing hospitals because you can claim that Hamas militants are operating in and out of them or bombing mosques because you can say that that's where they are, irrespective of the fact that that's where other people are, doesn't change the fact that you're killing civilians. I've always had issue with this when it's, when it's the U.S. that was doing this in places where they said, well, this is the terrorist, op- you know, mo- how they operate. They want to try and camouflage along the civilian population it's like well they're working with homemade rockets and i think it's it does not make sense for them to all huddle in one field to get wiped out by one f-16 strike right like you understand that that's no there's no this is the tool that they have which is fear they don't have any weapons really in comparison to what israel has this is not and, and there's no way to say this to not sound insane because obviously what I'm what I'm saying, I'm not saying that what they're doing is right, but I'm trying to frame that they are using the tool that they have, which is not that we can have any kind of sustained war with Israel. Like their rockets are gonna run out at some point. Most of the rest of them are not gonna hit or inflict serious damage. But what they continue to do is remind israel that they're still there and that's the i think that's the the problem with the notion that we can just like wipe them out is that who like is this was the same thing with al-qaeda and then al-qaeda became isis it was like well we just need to get the terrorists it's like well who are the terrorists are they like you know, do they have like a list and then once you get everybody on the list, there's no more? It's you know, we're talking about people who live in an area who are impoverished, not necessarily by choices of their own. They like, you know, when Israel says we can shut off their water, electricity, and basically access to food and fuel, this is not like they can flip that switch on and off because that's how they operate, they've been able to basically shut these people off from the rest of the world. So it's I yeah, I mean I there's no way for me to sit here and tell them like this you can't or you know you you shouldn't feel like you should do this. But I I think this is really what's happening now because in the past when terrorist attacks have happened, everybody was or it was a lot a lot more people especially in the west were always on the side of Israel. And now that armor is cracking in part because there's more transparency into the conditions in which people in Palestine or Palestinian territories live and so this is the this is where it gets it just it just gets murky because until until there's like a real resolution to this there's like you know whatever they do now you cannot like you cannot basically, I mean, all right, Hamas, for instance, right? They sent mil pair, pair of gliders and, you know, people through from the air, they swam over, they did all this stuff, right? Almost every one of those people I'm sure is dead now. Right? So they were, whether they were suicide bombers or not, they basically were resigned to the fact that they were going to do this to die. Now, In fighting people who are very willing to die, like knowing that they are going to die, it's very difficult to like scare them with the the thought of death into like not doing what they're going to do. So what, how do you treat this problem of desperation that gets people to this point? And, And certainly... We can't talk about this without talking about anti-Semitism. And certainly we can't talk about this without talking about Islamophobia. Like there are a lot of racial components and ethnic components and religious components to this as well. But there is like a common human component that seems to be missed when these things happen. And this is, I don't I yeah, I don't know. It's very... Uh, there's a, there's obviously there's much despair on the ground but for someone who's just h- hoping that the fighting will stop there is a lot of despair because i i understand the anger and i know that when 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 something like this happens the reflexive response is to hit back and hit back harder yeah. and when you have the might that israel has it's hard to it would be hard to restrain it but the, I think the question is still posed, like, to what long-term gain? Like, what are you trying to get out of it?
2: Sure. I, I want to come back to that because I think the United States, no one would have been able to stop us back in 2001 or 2003 from doing what we did. There's nothing from the outside perspective that you can say that would have prevented us from getting our retribution. So to continue along with this 9-11, but I think we're, I think. I want to come back to that at the end because I do think we're in a different position regarding Israel than any other country would have been to us, rightly or wrongly. But to continue, like the the 9 11 parallel, you and I have talked about this when we've reflected on 9 11 is that there was a lot of righteous anger at the United States for what many. Middle Easterners, Arabs viewed as invasion of their holy lands stemming from American presence post the, the the first Gulf War over the subsequent decades. And in addition to that, there was widespread poverty and, and lack of really economic opportunity in those areas, which were, then became breeding grounds for anti-American, anti-West sentiment in those areas. And so what we always said, even in relation to the great tragedy that happened and on u.s soil was there is never an excuse there's no rationalizing what terrorists did there but you understood why there was so much anger and so if you are someone if you are a supporter of palestinians and, and or just someone that's that's trying to make sense of it what you would argue is that they have essentially been living in this Open air prison for the last 20 years. If you're more of a supporter of Israel, you'll say, "Well, Israel pulled all of their forces out in of Gaza in 2005. They brought some, like their settlers out, and they really established this border. But it is essentially Israel does has instituted a blockade of that area. There is very little movement." Certainly, free movement between Gaza and Israel—certainly, um, understandably so, given what just happened this this last year, or this last weekend. But, uh, and so, Israel would say, "Well, they chose to elect this terrorist Hamas, this terrorist organization in 2006. Well, they're going to have to live with the consequences if they want to. If their leaders are terrorists." But again, on the other side, and you're kind of saying this is. Well, you don't really have any other options there because of the poverty and the lack of economic opportunity there. You have a really all of these young people, frequently young men, that don't have jobs, that have no hope for the future. That has proven to lead to terrorism, and so it's kind of like chicken or the egg, right? The Israeli does the. the Israel treat the guys like this because Hamas came to be in power as a terrorist organization, or did Hamas come to be in power as a terrorist organization because Israel treated them like this? I don't. I, I don't think you're going to have anyone that's really going to agree on like what what the root cause of that issue is. But I will say, Ricky, like you said, that all of the horror that happened in the U. S. response to 9/11 did it make us any safer? I think you could argue it did. i think one of the the best arguments for those wars which again those forever wars i have said repeatedly on this podcast that i was not a fan of particularly not particularly in the last few years but also in hindsight knowing what we now know but what was one of the things was the bush doctrine we're going to hit them before they hit us and that like if this conflict is going to happen if it's really inevitable then the conflict is going to happen in their homes not in our homes and knock on wood while there have been domestic terrorists in the last 20 years we haven't seen anything like that i'm sure israel's feeling the same thing
0: yeah i would take it uh, i mean i think there is a correlation there potentially but iraq was not a the the attackers from 9-11 didn't come from iraq or afghanistan they came from saudi arabia so how going into upending iraq and afghanistan prevented future would-be attackers from Saudi Arabia coming into the. US I'm not entirely sure. obviously we did ramp up our intelligence tenfold a hundredfold since then um, which and undoubtedly we have foiled terrorist plots and things like that um, which you know you can't I, I think that that is an undeniable fact whether, what we did in Iraq, creating the kind of power vacuum that we did there or what we did in Afghanistan, sort of allowing Al Qaeda to, I mean, you know, really take hold there, did things to improve our long term national security, I would still say the jury's out um, at best, just because we, I mean, this is the, the thing about these kinds of attacks is that they are always intended to be few and far between the idea is for people to feel unsafe, but you don't have to do something like that every day to create that fear. And whether or not the goal would ever be to do something like that every day, I think is also undecided. I think most of the, well, I I don't really want to try and ascribe any motivations to this, Um, or to like pretend to even understand really um, anything beyond that there's anger there as well. Um, The, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, I think those lines are challenging to draw. And I think, you know, if we, if we, if we think that we did some, Did anything in the long term to ameliorate our standing in these places, such that people in desperate positions wouldn't hold us accountable or us responsible. And obviously, you know, sometimes it's misplaced blame, but a lot of times it's not. um, That I don't know that we have taken enough of those steps, and I'm not saying that we should be scared, you know, worried about an imminent threat. I I think our national security is is pretty strong but that that always is out there and for Israel it's even worse because as you said they're they live right there. Um I yeah, I I uh I don't I don't necessarily yeah, I guess I do, I don't I don't know that I agree, I don't know that I disagree per se. All right
2: then I do want to come back to the United States' role in this because I think the number one goal right now is to prevent this from spiraling and cascading into a a regional conflict and I don't think it would take that much for that to happen. Certainly we know that Iran backs Hamas and Hezbollah and there was just this morning came out that Iran met with Hamas last Monday and gave the green light on this I believe that Secretary State Blinken says that, like, we know that Iran is broadly complicit in the situation because they support Hamas and Hezbollah, but there was no direct evidence that Iran was actually helping with this attack. Really careful words, because as soon as you say that Iran was behind, like, explicitly behind this attack, well, as Israel's close ally, we're much more likely to be drawn into it. And the United States had already sent their most their most recent aircraft carrier uh the ussr gerald ford into the the mediterranean as deterrence to hezbollah from escalating this conflict and it wouldn't what we've seen before even though there have been normalizations between uh, arab countries and israel in the last few years in the last few decades we've seen these conflict uh, conflicts against israel spiral whether it was with egypt and lebanon or jordan and That would be the real fear. So that's one of the US, prevent it from spiraling. Two, we are in a position as Israel's strongest backer to maybe, mitigate maybe is not the right word, but to try to add in a little bit more of reason and a little bit less of the emotion and the anger, which we all agree is totally justified to feel angry and feel scared and to feel violated. But there was no country that was in a position vis-a-vis us in 2001 like we are with Israel, because not only are we their biggest supporter, but we also provide them with a ton of their, their military might. Why is Israel so strong? Well, huge credit to them militarily, but also the United States has, has bankrolled and given much, much of that. So I do think that we are in a position to To try to to maybe prevent not only the larger situation from spiraling, but from the the position in Israel and Palestine from spiraling. And I don't know that we'll do that. Obviously, when you have such a horrific event like this, even though there has been splits in the American political community in recent years of Iran, like the Israeli government, and there's well noted we've discussed several times the tension between Biden and Netanyahu. This is the changes that were happening in Israel's democracy. It, this this is as far right a government as they've ever had. So I'm not sure that but I guess what I'm saying here in the United States is that there's obviously kind of a rallying to the flag. In this case the rallying to the flag of Israel of everyone's gotta support them. And that's where you've seen the vast majority of statements. I think that's entirely appropriate. But I wonder if there's going to be any appetite for, look, I understand this anger and maybe we'll we'll let you, we'll let you go for a few days here, but at some point, like we need to come back to trying to address the root causes of these issues.
0: That is very wishful thinking because I think, I mean, you're, I I think you're absolutely right, but I think you've, you're, you're absolutely right in the way that you've been, that this has been the situation that. The U.S. has been the only country with the leverage here. Um, And, I mean, not to really get us down a different rabbit hole, but I think the parallel with Ukraine is, is like, very similar, right? (laughs) Like, we we have the cards, and as much as we would – as much as on the one hand we'll say we kind of support unequivocally and we'll do whatever it is that you want us to do, there is this sort of implicit that, like, we – we will allow you to do whatever it is that you want to do. And then on the back end, we'll, we'll bankroll it. Um, the not, and I think you're also right to point out that to some extent, Israel doesn't need it as much anymore. They've been able to really grow, uh, their their military position, um, into a very strong one. Um, I, I think one of the things that you mentioned about Netanyahu is, interesting and it is important in the context of like american involvement because israel for us has always been well we support israel unequivocally because in their where they are located they are the for us the bastion of democracy of liberal thought where it's like where a lot of our values they share and yet of course you know we know what Netanyahu has been doing to consolidate power. I think it's I think it's also worth mentioning that when we talk about what Palestine Palestinians have done sort of in the election of Hamas, not not that they're comparable, but in terms of resistance to any kind of two-state solution and really continuing on sort of this aggressive front. I mean Netanyahu has Continued. To, I mean, uh, you know, approving the the uh, the raids um, of the camps in Janine, You have the Al Aqsa Mosque from a few years ago. Continuing to uh, bulldoze Palestinian houses on, um, you know, in in conflict in sort of conflicted areas. Unlike some predecessors who were more interested in a two-state solution netanyahu is not one of them and in some ways this is like the the validation that he's been looking for to consolidate power in many ways that we would have liked him not to have done because of the kind of anti-democratic implications behind it and so yeah politically there are some interesting things i think that Whatever, what that notion was if you give like a president or something these like powers to act in an emergency then how do they react well, all they when need is emergency. Is an emergency right yeah. yeah exactly and so that is also but i mean it also like in in these times in war times people tend to gravitate towards strong men anyways because yeah. they feel safer that way yeah. and a lot of what I think a lot of what he's going to do is going to make people feel safer in the short term that I think the I would keep coming back to is in the long run. Yeah. I don't know that. I don't know that this is going to, to work. And then for us as a democracy, as you know, people who believe in the, you know, your inalienable rights of, uh, Uh, life liberty and the pursuit of happiness right like how do we feel about a government that basically has to deprive the neighboring people of all of those things in order to secure their or in order to feel secure right like people in gaza don't have free movement they can they can't like buy anything they want it's hard for them to start businesses or buy property or build things Right. Like a lot of those things that we consider sort of the inalienable rights of man or of people. We're also saying, well, you can suspend those in order to secure your own safety. And, and we've we've done that in the past with the Patriot Act and other types of things. Um, but is that really a tenable position for in perpetuity? I think that's going to be a challenge um, for us to sort of square with how we think people of the world should live or should be able to live.
2: Yeah, and I think your point about Ukraine is well taken, is that we have watched and reacted in horror, seeing and hearing what Russians have done to Ukrainian civilians, and we watched and heard in horror what Hamas just did to Israeli civilians. I think we have to stay consistent, and if what we expect to happen happens that we have to react in a similar way to what israel is probably about to do to palestinian citizens and that ultimately i understand and i'm fully supportive of standing by israel as an ally but as you and i have talked about many times being an ally just like being a friend doesn't always mean that you let people do whatever they want at some point you have to say speak up when things are not right and unfortunately i think this is going to get a lot worse before before there's any hope of it getting better at all. It reminds me so much, Ricky, of the movie, The Kingdom, which is a 2007 movie, uh, great cast, it's Jamie Foxx, Jennifer Garner, Jason Bateman, and probably a bunch of other people, I'm forgetting. but anyway, have you seen it before? Mm. Uh, I don't know, I, I, I probably referenced it before, but it's uh, this fictional terrorist attack that happens in Saudi Arabia, these Americans die, and the last scene in the movie. Sorry, spoiler alert. Great movie, I want you to go watch. Spoiler alert. But there's a scene in the movie and Jamie Foxx's character, who's a United States intelligence officer, they go over and they they kill the bomb maker and they kill all these Saudis that were part of this fictional terrorist attack. And so they have a split screen with Jamie Foxx's character and then the character of a young Saudi Arabian whose grandfather was the one that Jamie Foxx had killed. And they have Jason Bateman's character ask Jamie Foxx's character simultaneous to the boy's mother asking him and the boy's mother says, "What did your grandfather say to you before he died?" And Jamie Fox is Jason Bateman says to Jamie Fox, "What did you say to the wife of the, the man who was murdered by the grandfather?" And both of them say, "I told him not to worry. We're gonna kill them all." And it was—it's so powerful. I'm getting like chills even talking about it because like that's what you see. There's like anyone who family member or friend or anyone who feels that like, hey, as an Israeli, as an Israeli, as a Jew. Uh, we need to kill them all. Well, what's going to happen now? Israel is going to kill a bunch of people, and those people are going to be brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, and all of those people will say, we got to kill all of them. And that's the terrible thing about these conflicts. We've seen it in India and Pakistan. We've seen it in Ireland and England. Right? These are not. This is not unique to the Middle East. This, this happens all over the world, but this is what's, This is why it's very hard to end because of situations like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Well said. I think we we know we could go on forever and perhaps yeah. go on in in circles a bit. I think at some point I would be interested in, in talking about the troubles because it's a a conflict that I don't know as much about between Protestants and Catholics and Ireland Northern Ireland and that area. Um, but it it seems like it has a lot of parallels to hear something that felt like it was never ending, but in some ways as there is some conclusion as actually, I probably shouldn't talk too much, but <laughs> I know really nothing about it. But I think, I think in, as we are students of history, like trying our best to find ways to draw parallels and see, have we ever managed a way out of solution of situations that seemed so intractable um, yeah, if we can, if we can see any through lines.
2: Sure. Like you said, there's still so much more to say. We know we only scratched the surface. We tried to hit as as many things and hit them as fairly as possible. Obviously, you and I have our own personal opinions on this, but we also try to step back and, and see the other side as much as possible. And I know it's very difficult in a situation like this, but Appreciate you, as always, being able to have this conversation. We hope that people out there found this helpful, interesting. Certainly, as Ricky said at the beginning, we are very open to feedback and context. We know that we are missing a lot. And so if you have thoughts, please feel free to let us know. Instagram, find us, uh, A underscore gentlemen's underscore disagreement or Gmail, gentleman_can_disagree@gmail.com at gmail.com. Uh, we'd be happy to address them in subsequent episodes because as we both unfortunately think this is not going to be a short-term conflict.
0: Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll call it there. And uh, when we come back, we just got a couple other things before we wrap up this week.
2: So what we were going to talk about this week before everything unfolded in Israel and Palestine was the historic ouster of Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. It was not a surprise. It was something that you and I had talked about repeatedly leading up around his 15 ballots that it took him in January to get the position of Speaker to the negotiations around the debt ceiling at the end of May to finally the negotiations around the shutdown just a week ago. And We had said at the time that we expected a vote to come up to oust him, that vote was successful. But then the surprise to me was that he chose not to run for speaker again. So right now there is a speaker pro tempore, Patrick McHenry from North Carolina. The Republicans will hold a vote this week to get a a replacement speaker, a, a new nominee, Steve Scalise from Louisiana and Jim Jordan from Ohio seem to be the top two candidates right now. We'll obviously talk a lot more about that in subsequent episodes, but certainly this was it's the first time in history that the, the House of Representatives has removed the speaker, so it's historic. Obviously, it was worthy of a longer conversation that, again, we will have in future episodes. But it, working to tie it all together, really, pre- the president is going to need Congress to act if he wants to provide certain support to Israel in, soon, And in, in addition to needing Congress to act if they want to continue to provide support to Ukraine or the southern border or whatever and right now the house is kind of paralyzed because they don't have a speaker who's able to like bring any of these bills to the floor so if there wasn't urgency to get our government functioning on friday maybe there will be come tomorrow
0: yeah i don't know that i have anything to add to that uh at the moment it is a big tbd and uh definitely notable as a first time in history kind of thing
2: yeah, first time in history for that. Not the first time that I remind everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted, high-end custom tables in Destin Boston since 2018. You can check them out online uh, on Instagram or online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Whether you celebrate Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day or neither or both, everyone needs some good furniture in their house, and we urge you guys to go take a look at, at those guys that have been so supportive of us.
0: Really beautiful pieces over there. All right, we'll call it. Talk to you soon. Till next time, bud. See you.
1: We stay up all night on Garner Avenue. Debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet. Talking heads, running around round till we forget where it was we began. Some morning you were away. Some morning left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The value sometimes of Being wrong Some mornings you're away Some mornings let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions, we shared an American ideal. Friends made all the arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me when we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's trying to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through But, well, I wouldn't give for Oh I used to find and chase the lines ahead. Folks with different minds because though we did not share, Opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks, of different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning, but...